Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Obama administration established the first federal standards to reduce emissions from coal plants. It was part of the Clean Power Plan. The Trump administration wants to replace that with the Affordable Clean Energy Plan. By the EPA's own estimation, the Trump administration's Affordable Clean Energy Plan will lead to dirtier air and the premature death of 1,400 people a year. On Monday, the EPA held our nation's only publicly scheduled hearing about the regulatory change. It was in the Metcalf Federal Building in the Loop. The governor of the state of Washington came. New York's attorney general was there. Illinois' attorney general Lisa Madigan spoke. Later in the hour, I'll talk with the organization that showed up in the Stop Killing Us t-shirts. But first, let's talk with one of the people who offered testimony at the EPA hearing on Monday, Howard Lerner, Executive Director of the Environmental Law and Policy Center. Good to see you, Howard. Good to see you, Jerome. I think we need to know how a regulation gets made because everybody has seen Schoolhouse Rock and knows how a bill gets made. But we have never had a Schoolhouse Rock on a regulation, and this is a hearing on a regulation. If I wanted to make a regulation and I was sitting there at the EPA, can I just dream up anything and just start uh, start slapping it down if I want to? Uh... Well, you can at the EPA, but here's how this one came about. The Clean Air Act was passed in 1970. It's been amended a couple times after that by Congress, and it requires EPA to regulate pollutants. Uh, Supreme Court in Massachusetts versus EPA said that carbon dioxide – which causes global warming, is a pollutant, and that EPA, therefore, has to regulate it or give a very, very good reason why they're not. What happened was during the Bush administration, they dragged their heels when President Obama was elected. The EPA made what's called an endangerment finding based on science, not law, not policy so much. Based on sound science, they said carbon dioxide endangers public health. And under the Clean Air Act, if EPA finds, based on science, that a pollutant endangers public health, they must regulate it so the pollution is reduced to a level so it doesn't endanger public health. And that's what led to the Clean Power Plan. Lots of hearings, lots of testimony, lots of data submitted, lots of comments. Clean Power Plan comes out, and the current administration says, the heck with that, we don't like it, we're going to roll it back. Well, is that legal to do. It seems like if you are you're having all these public hearings and getting all this reaction to establish um, what data that facts us, public support, why, why do you have hearings about these changes? Well, first of all, a hearing is an opportunity for people, businesses, public officials, you know, whether it's the people who testified here last earlier this week, Governor Inslee and so forth, or Attorney General Madigan, or environmental groups like the Environmental Law and Policy Center, the Sierra Club, grassroots citizens who want to come in and participate, or businesses that have something to say. That's a process by which their views can be heard. And there's also written comments. So in addition to our testimony, for example, we're filing a detailed set of written comments uh, in partnership with a number of our environmental colleagues and public health colleagues. But you can sort of see how interested the current administration is. Uh, they're holding one public hearing. Here they're changing what, a fundamental standard, one hearing. It happens to be in Chicago. What's the normal thing to do? Well, first of all, there are many more hearings, okay? You know, the Obama administration, even the Bush administration said the public cares about this. It's important. Rather than just have one hearing in Chicago where the governor of um, 
Washington has to fly in here. You know, typically there'll be a hearing somewhere in the east, a hearing in the west, maybe one in the south, one in the Midwest. That way they hear from lots of different people, lots of different interests. But what you have is an administration here that's saying clean power plan, eight years of work, tremendous participation by businesses, by the public. We want to get rid of it, roll it back. We're going to substitute something called the affordable clean energy rule. The trouble is the affordable clean energy rule isn't just a difference of opinion of how do we achieve that carbon pollution reduction in order to avoid the endangerment to public health. The problem is their substitute doesn't do much of anything. It sounds like their substitute is you know, going to endanger public health and the public health is going to go up. I thought we had established back in the Reagan administration that you can't just make a regulation that hurts people. They, people might recall back in the Reagan administration, there were airbag controversies. The auto industry didn't – the Reagan administration didn't want the poor auto industry to have to suffer the economic consequences of airbags and told them – you know, said we're going to go back on this regulation – you don't have to. It was required. Now it's not required. And um, the Supreme Court sided with um, you know, public safety in a unanimous decision. So you, if you go back on public safety, it's against the law, right? Well, that's right. The whole purpose of the public, you know, of the Clean Air Act is to protect public health and safety and welfare. And there's a set of procedures under the Administrative Procedure Act that says that um, – when the Bush administration left office, the Obama administration couldn't come in the next day and say, we don't like your regulations, they're gone, here's ours. There's a process. You asked, how does the legal system work? There's a notice and comment, and that's comment uh, at hearings and it's comments in writing. There's a process by which our administrative regulations get adopted. And there is a process under the law by which if a new administration wants to change those or alter them, they have to go through that process. What's happened in the first two years of the Trump administration is in multiple cases, they've rolled back or they've tried to get rid of regulations without following the law and courts have slapped them down. And we've been part of a number of those cases. We've been fighting back and playing to win against the Trump administration. And in part, we're winning some cases because they're simply not following the law in terms of what they have to do. But your point is that here's a new regulation, the so-called affordable clean energy rule, and what it would do by their own admission is to lead to more deaths. So that's not improving public health. It's making public health worse. Having found that it's necessary to regulate carbon pollution in order to avoid endangerments to public health, they're rolling back the regulations from the Obama administration that are designed to reduce carbon pollution by 32% from coal plants and instead saying, here's a regulation that may not do anything to that effect. I'm talking with Howard Lerner, Executive Director of the Environmental Law and Policy Center. We're talking about the hearing held on Monday. It was the EPA's only national hearing on the regulatory change that would bring uh, the Affordable Clean Energy Plan into existence. <coughs> and, uh, you know, I wonder um, – I wanted to ask a question about um, why this whole um, system – how it's built, because I don't think anybody looks back on 
like catalytic converters or unleaded gas as undue regulatory burdens. Nobody thinks of airbags or seatbelts as these horrible things. These are things that companies promote now to say, my car is safe. Look at all the thousands of airbags I have in this car. It's more than the other car. Uh, the, The... People like having their lives saved. Our cars are safer. Our air is cleaner. These are good things. Nobody ever looks back at them and says, oh, man, GM could have made more money in 1980 over this. You know, the word regulation for some people has become sort of a dirty word, but people think standards are fair. You know, people sometimes don't like rules, but they like standards. Standards are fair. So when you look at the standards that have been adopted over the years – it would be almost laughable to most people if we didn't have them in place. Is there a standard that limits the amount of toxic pollution you can put upstream in a river if it's going to affect my water supply downstream? Absolutely. Are there standards that are designed under the Clean Water Act to help clean up Lake Michigan? You know, anybody who's grown up in Chicago or lived in Chicago for a number of years remembers industrial pollution going straight out into Lake Michigan. Uh, and the beach is not being very clean to swim in. Almost every day this summer, it's been fine and safe to swim on the beaches. There have been a couple days of problems. By and large, the lake has gotten much cleaner. Airbags, leaded gasoline, I mean, seat belts. You look at it today, and if you said, you know, there was a battle over whether seat belts should be required, and you ask that of anybody under the age of 35, they'd say, huh? <laughs> Think about the regulations on mercury pollution. And right now... Why do we have to go to the mat every time over stuff that is killing people? Why do businesses think that they have a uh, God-given right to kill people with unsafe products? Well, first of all, we have an administration in Washington that is trumping common sense with ideology. You know, simply put, and we all understand this, President Trump is trying to roll back everything in a regulatory sense that the Obama administration did. And they're going to now, they have in their sights the mercury pollution reduction standards. And if you poll people on mercury, you know, people look at it and say, are you kidding? We're not going to regulate. We're not going to reduce the amount of mercury pollution. Who's kidding who? The interesting piece is that business is beginning to get split. So when you look at the clean power plan, companies like Exxon, which has nuclear plants, Companies like Invenergy, which is a large wind power company headquartered in Chicago, energy efficiency companies, some of the natural gas companies, they're saying, look, it's fair. Coal plant owners ought to be accountable for the pollution they generate, and they shouldn't be able to put that off on public health. They should have to reduce that pollution and internalize their costs. So you're seeing business splitting, and you're also seeing businesses split on what I'll call consistent regulation. One of the real challenges of this administration, if somebody's just running a business, is, well, the regulations were this way. Now Trump's trying to change them. Four years later, they're going to change back. It's sort of hard to run a business with that sort of yin-yang effect. So, so you like have you- also, though, some businesses, Jerome, that seem to be saying, we're going to try to keep running our coal plants as cheap and dirty as we can, We're not going to install modern pollution control technology unless and we're required to do it. And that's what we're dealing with here in Illinois with the Vistra Dynergy coal plants in the central part of the state. And that's the Illinois Pollution Control Board gets to make a decision about some of the um, things that are 
going on in the with emissions in the bottom right. of the state. Ten years ago, we worked with Dynagy, we worked with Ameren, uh, we worked with a company called Midwest Generation that's now NRG to reach settlements and agreements on a timeline by which <clears throat> modern pollution reduction equipment would be installed in the plants. It was agreed upon. It was done. There was a timeline. Companies were saying, don't require us to do it all day one. Give us a pathway to implement it. So now what you have is Dynergy, which owns all the coal, almost all the coal plants in central and southern Illinois. They were bought by another company based in Texas called Vistra. They're saying, we want a waiver of those standards. It's come time to, by which we actually have to install modern pollution control equipment in order to protect public health. Um, let us change the rules. The effect of it is going to be they won't have to reduce pollution at some of their plants. We think that's wrong. We've opposed it. It's the Environmental Law and Policy Center, Respiratory Health Association, the Sierra Club. We're all unified. Tomorrow, the Pollution Control Board has on its agenda uh, a board order by which they're going to decide, are they going to give Vistra, a Houston-based company, the right to forestall uh, putting on modern pollution control equipment on some of their plants. We hope they'll say no. We'll see what the Rauner administration does. But they've got the same uh, question before it that people do about the EPA. Are, are you going to pollute more air, kill more people, or, or are you going to regulate You know, one of the plants? interesting challenges and opportunities is while the federal government is stepping back you know, clearly that's what the Trump administration is doing. And we're fighting them. We're playing to win. We need states and cities to step up with solutions. And the, you know, the distressing possibility is that while the federal government is stepping back, we don't want to see the Rauner administration do the same here in Illinois. Do you see a lot of people at these hearings? Uh, was yesterday, the Monday hearing for the EPA, was that well attended? Because I did see some shots on television, empty chairs and things like that. There were some protesters outside, but yeah. uh, it seems like it's a lightly attended affair. You know, there were two rooms. There was a big room and a smaller room. Uh, when I was there, there were a lot of people there. Uh, I don't know what the headcount was over the course of the day. There are a lot of demonstrators. There are a lot of people testifying. Look, the US EPA, instead of holding three or four hearings nationally, decided to hold it all in Chicago. Um, if you happen to be a grassroots activist in Pennsylvania, um, maybe you didn't want to drive into or fly into Chicago for the hearings. There were a fair number of people there. You could pan a camera around the room and see a lot of people. And there were some times, I think, later in the day when there were fewer people there. In the morning, it was pretty busy. And these hearings are going on for the uh, of car efficiency standards uh, in Michigan as well. I, I was reading about some of those. Different set of rollbacks on. that the administration is doing on the clean car standards that were adopted. The hearings there were held about a week and a half ago in Michigan. You know, an uh, inappropriate place to hold hearings when you're dealing with cars in the auto industry. Some of the car companies are, are against the rollbacks. You know, sometimes, what's the old line about sometimes you, know, you get what you ask for and you're not very happy with it? <laughs> um, a number of the car companies are beginning to retool. And they're playing sort of an interesting uh, Texas two-step here. On the one hand, they're telling the public, we're getting clean, look at the electric vehicles, look at what we're doing. On the other hand, they're lobbying in Washington to uh, 
change the standards, hold some of the standards back. I think you're beginning to see a split in the auto industry. But the biggest thing the auto industry is beginning to fear is that, well, they'll get a set of rollbacks under Trump. And then if there's a Democratic administration next, the standards will tighten up again. And as I think you and your listeners know, California is able to do its own standards, and other states, there are a dozen of them, can adopt the California standards. So I think while the federal government's stepping back here, you're seeing some of the states, including California, step up, and you're seeing the irony of a number of Republicans in Washington who are generally known as states' rights, states' rights, saying, no, we don't want California to be able to do its thing under the Clean Air Act. If we have the federal government stepping back, we need to have room for the states to step up with progress. Howard Lerner is executive director of the Environmental Law and Policy Center. You can read his uh, remarks that he made Monday at the EPA's uh, hearing on the Affordable Clean Energy Plan at their website, uh, the Environmental Law Policy Center. Thanks a lot for joining us, Howard. Good to see you. Good to join you. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll have uh, some words with the organization that showed up at the EPA hearing wearing the Stop Killing Us t-shirts. Stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Before the break, we were talking about Monday's EPA hearing on the Trump administration's new Affordable Clean Energy Plan. It's a plan that will result in dirtier air. By the EPA's own estimates, it will lead to as many as 1,400 premature deaths a year. So the people who showed up at the EPA hearing with Stop Killing Us t-shirts were quite on point. They were supporters of People's Action. It's a grassroots organization of poor and working class people that do community organizing. George Gale is the director of People's Action, and he joins us now. Thanks for joining us, George. Hey, glad to be here. So um, the idea for the T-shirt, Stop Killing Us, really to the point there, <laughs> what, what, what was that? What, whose idea was that? How did that happen? Yeah, I think it was, you know, a bunch of organizers on the phone being clear that uh, we needed to rebrand Trump's plan, which is, is is certainly not the affordable clean energy rule, but is the uh, kill more people plan. And, you know, I think one of the key shifts that's happening in the climate movement is the centering of the leadership of people that are thinking about climate, not in a futuristic way, but are in a direct fight with the dirty energy sector right now. So this is not theoretical. To folks, if you live next to a marathon refinery, if there's a pipeline that's going to run through your rural community, if fracking leases are going to be taken out in your neighborhood, and um, and we have a bunch of members who live next to these coal-fired power plants, and so people are already suffering, people are already sick, and this plan, which basically will do the absolute minimum and maybe worse, um, is a direct threat to people's lives, and uh, and we need to make that clear. And I think it's especially important in a moment when there's just so many bad things happening uh, kind of politically, culturally on on the policy front. Stories like this can get lost. And we felt like we needed to, to make sure that didn't happen. The Trump administration seems to counter with we're saving the coal industry. And there are 
coal industry people in Illinois who are happy about what's going on and think that uh, deregulation of the coal industry is going to be a good thing for people in their community. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know how that's true, but I, I mean, I get it. You know, like corporations are going to do what they got to do to to protect their own interests. Um, but we're heading towards a, a energy transition in the U.S. and globally, and that's going to happen. And I think it's really the big test in front of us is like how quickly we can move to 100% renewable energy economy. That's, I think, kind of goal number one. A second challenge, though, in that transition, and this does impact the communities that will, where jobs will be lost, is how do we make sure that transition is equitable? So in terms of both the kind of cleanup of the dirty energy sector, the people that would lose jobs in such a transition, and also who would benefit from some of the new jobs created. Um, and then third, how do we figure out how to democratize the energy sector? We could move from, you know, 10, 20 multinational corporations controlling, you know, coal and oil to 10, 20 multinational corporations controlling, you know, the wind and solar. And we've got an opportunity in this transition to make sure that more of the energy sector is actually held and controlled by the people. Um, so big challenges, but also huge opportunities in this transition. Well, how do you add this up when it comes to government? It seems like people don't have as much input as these energy companies sometimes. that This is the only hearing that was going to happen for the affordable clean energy plan where people could speak on it from the public. What's this process? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point. I mean, you'd have to be pretty tuned in to know that there was a one, that there was a plan and a rule, and two, that there was a, a hearing, a single hearing um, on the rule. So I think it's a real issue. I mean, look, you know, the Trump administration, and I think many parts of the right are trying to figure out how to kind of minimize um, and limit democracy and, and people's participation um, in decision making. And so I think, you know, it's a real challenge, um, but we can't, you know, wring our hands about it. We got to figure out other ways to, to engage. And so that might mean in, in the case of the hearing, you know, on Monday, you know, taking over the hearing and making sure um, there was an escalation and tension brought into the conversation and also hopefully get the conversation to move out into the media. But we've got to constantly find ways to move more people into civic life. And I think that's happening. I mean, there's definitely been a major uptick in people participating uh, since since Trump was elected. And we have to you know continue to kind of put the pedal on the gas, for lack of a better metaphor. Are you seeing that at People's Action, more people joining up? Because I think there's some level of activism, but I don't know if it really hits community organizing uh, organizations. Do you have new people who are participating? Oh, yeah, without question. I mean, it started around the work to protect the Affordable Care Act. Lots of new people joined. Um, we've had a lot of people join around the, the work to... Um, reunite families uh, from the family separation crisis at the border, um, and then a lot of people engaging on, you know, more local issues. And I think, uh, you know, whether it is a, a, you know, marathon refinery, you know, in somebody's backyard or a, or a fracking uh, lease being taken out in somebody's community. So we've seen a major uptick, both kind of in terms of people's receptiveness, you know, our organizers go out and knock on doors and talk to people, receptiveness in those conversations, but also kind of on the phones, digitally, online, and on the street. Um, and I, that said, we need more. I mean, I think if to, to break the kind of grip on a, a democracy that you mentioned earlier, 
we're going to need, you know, millions of poor and working class people to come together across race and place and unite um, to be able to advance a much different agenda than the one that's on the table now. I'm talking with George Gale. He's director of People's Action. It's a grassroots coalition of poor and working class people who do community organizing work. Now, you're headquartered in Chicago, but we reached you in Seattle. You're doing a project on white nationalism? Yeah. Um, I was out here taping a show for, for that's going to happen soon around efforts to defeat white nationalism. So People's Action is a multiracial organization. We have uh, poor and working class members all across the country, and we are unique in that we are truly multiracial, black, white, Latino, Native, and Asian, um, and we do urban, suburban, and rural organizing. And um, following the election of Donald Trump, we decided to double down on our organizing in rural communities, and we've just finished 10,000 conversations with people in rural communities, asking people, like, what issues do you most want to work on? And who and what do you think is responsible for the current pretty challenging conditions in your community? And in a lot of the, the rural communities that we're working in and some of the small town and small cities, um, we've seen a major rise in, in white nationalist organizations. Um, and quite honestly, we're in organizing and, you know, door knocking in neighborhoods in Chicago. You might run into other community organizers and a lot of this rural and small town organizing we're doing. We run into other organizers. They just happen to be from the alt-right or white nationalist organizations. So so the work there is really a, a battle for hearts and minds and a battle to develop community leaders who want to uh, build organization and movement around an economic and racial justice agenda. And one of the troubling things we see is that now we're starting to see an uptick in declared white nationalists running for office at the local level as well as the federal level. Um, so um, we are also engaging in electoral activities to make sure we those folks don't actually get elected and take control of local governments. What is it that you find is driving this after 10,000 conversations with people? Driving which piece? The, the white nationalism and the, the kind of response we're seeing? Well, I think one, I mean, the, the kind of some of the underlying sentiments uh, around white supremacy and white nationalism have, have been there. It's not, that's not new. I do think um, the election of Donald Trump and the rise of people like Steve Bannon and then Richard Spencer, a kind of leader in the alt-right, has started to kind of legitimize these activities in certain ways that has meant much of it's it gone public that was already there and already felt, um, but more private, privately organized. So I think that's, that's the biggest shift. Um, and then I, and, and of course a big moving public means you actually have people that can go out and recruit. And so that's, that's a big shift that we're dealing with, but the people we talk to, like, I mean, you know, I would say one of the, I think big mistakes we make is we think about the country, we look at this big sea of red on a political map. And I think that, you know, oftentimes, you know, the media, Hollywood, others, kind of write off those parts of the country as, you know, kind of backward Trump-loving hillbillies um, and uh, and forget about all the people there that are, that are really, you know, fighting for, for what's right. And, uh, and that includes racial justice. That includes fighting for immigrants. So in our door knocking, we found, you know, a huge number of people that have just been really excited to have somebody knock on their door and want to talk about issues like health care, clean water, the opioid crisis and are coming to meetings and engaging in organizations. Um, we found another set of folks on the end that are like clearly very, con very conservative um, and have a different worldview in politics than we do. And, 
and and that doesn't surprise us. And then a, a group in the middle that's, you know, I think really trying to make meaning of this moment, and but also ready to engage in a conversation and come to a meeting on the issues. Um, and one of the things we're excited about in the way we've constructed this work, more often than not, these are multiracial co- contexts that people are in. So oftentimes in communities where white people and black people or white people and Latino people do not really relate to each other that much, we break down those barriers in these meetings and in these campaigns and then start to build new understanding and relationships across race and across place. How big an issue is climate change out there in this work that you're doing? Do they do people living in more rural situations? I'm sure they're often dependent on the land and would like to not see their climate change and the, the flooding and all the things that happen. Yeah, it's it, it's showed up as a top, you know, five or six issue in our conversations. Um, people wouldn't, I don't think, always frame it as climate change. So people might talk about the pipeline that's coming through, um, you know, the recovery that hasn't happened, um, you know, from a climate disaster, um, the promise of clean energy jobs, the coal-fired power plant that's polluting their neighborhood. Um, So I think people more tend to talk about it as kind of environmental health issues. Um, And then occasionally, I think some people, we're, we're seeing more and more people talk about the possibility of jobs that could come out of that, but I don't, but people don't frame it as climate. And I think that's actually probably informative for a lot of us that tend to, to frame it as climate. Cause that's just not, that's not the language people are using. Just thinking about that, like down in, in, in Illinois. Um, I mean, one of the more exciting things that's happened recently is the energy future jobs act that we passed in Illinois a couple of years back, but that generated $750 million for community solar and energy efficiency and the way the legislation was written is is designed to target low income and moderate income communities. And so in Peoria, Illinois, a program down there just it was just a pilot. It'll scale up, but just train thirty formerly incarcerated people uh, for jobs doing installing uh, uh, solar in communities. And those jobs make seventeen to twenty one dollars an hour. And so I think the more we have examples of what the kind of green economy could do economically. I think the more credible that that vision becomes. And so when it happens in places like Peoria and not just places, you know, like Chicago, I think it starts to broaden the base of support for such a program. Do you think we'll end up seeing the Trump administration's affordable energy plan implemented? You know, God, <laughs> I don't know. It, um, it, Yeah. I mean, maybe. It's so hard to say. I mean, we've got an interim EPA administrator who's a former coal lobbyist right now. Um, you know, it could end up in the courts. I, I don't feel like I'm equipped to answer that question. I, I wouldn't be betting on, on much of anything. George Gale is director of People's Action. It's a grassroots coalition of poor and working class people that do community work. They showed up at Monday's EPA hearing on the new affordable clean energy plan, and their supporters had Stop Killing Us t-shirts and disrupted the hearing for a bit. Thanks a lot for joining us, George Gale. Thank you. Appreciate it. Some places in this country will mark Columbus Day on Monday. Others will mark Indigenous Peoples Day. We will mark Indigenous Peoples Day on Global Notes with Catalina Maria Johnson after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. 
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. That is a tribe called Red. And for Global Notes today, our look at international music, we're marking Indigenous Peoples Day, and uh, we're going to look at new indigenous music. And I wanted to say that I am a guest on this land of the Miami, the Potawatomi, the Peoria, and the Ottawa Catalina Maria Johnson is here as usual for Global Notes. She hosts Beat Latino. Nice to see you again. I'm a guest here, too, on those lands and the Illinois. So it's wonderful to start the, uh, a show on the soundtrack a little bit of the indigenous renaissance, um, new First Nations artists that are really saying we're present in many ways by looking to the past and viewing the future all at the same time and starting off a public performance by acknowledging the land that you're on a guest is, I believe, part of the truth and reconciliation kind of recommendations that have come out of Canada. And I salute them because I think that's an important part of understanding where we are and where we need to go. And that was A Tribe Called Red, and they're going to be here, right, Jerome? In November at the Chop Shop, A Tribe Called Red is coming to Chicago, and they are probably the most prominent uh, indigenous band out there. They've had a Lots of big hits. Indeed, and uh, they are kind of the creators of what's been called the electric powwow. <laughs> and it, it's electric, and yes, and it's a powwow. <laughs> and the powwow that takes place in the Chicago area every fall is coming, and that's going to be at the Paul College Prep in Chicago on October 6th and 7th. That should be very fun. I went to one years ago when it was at UIC, and they're fantastic events where you can kind of really get in that groove with the drumming and the dancing, and uh, and it just goes and goes. Yes, and I, I I don't know if everybody knows, but we have the American Indian Center here in Chicago, and they are the sponsors of that powwow, and that's an important cultural resource in our area, too. Absolutely. The statistics on how many uh, Native Americans are here are, is huge. There's a large number in the Chicago area. Indeed, and the next song that we're going to hear is a uh, young man who grew up in the Rosebud Reservation in one of the Dakota and but he went to school here at Columbia College and he's a, a storyteller and a hip hop artist and he took this Disney song and created a whole new perspective and it, it's very powerful to think we know the words to this song everybody knows this song kids are growing up with this Disney song and from Peter Pan and yet here is the perspective that we need to include and understand all about red man Thanksgiving lies in Columbus Day. Tell me what I know more than the teacher. Tell me what I know more than the preacher. Tell me why you think the red man is red. Stained with the blood from the land he bled. Tell me why you think the red man is dead. With the fake headdress on your head. Tell me what you know about thousands of nations. Displaced and combined to concentration camps called reservations. We died for the birth of your nation. Hollywood portrays us wrong. History books say we're gone. You got a church, say we're wrong. We're from the earth, it made us strong. For many moons, red men fight pale-faced.
And that's Frank Wall. We're looking at new indigenous music here on Global Notes with Catalina Maria Johnson. And Frank Wall is going to be at the Black, Brown, and Indigenous Crew Punk Fest. <laughs> Gotta love that name. Yeah, I think uh, it's all part of celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day. And here's another contemporary take, but actually this young woman's background isn't is more of a subtext. It's not as apparent, but it's beautiful music. And this is Black Belt Eagle Scout, and she's from the Northwest United States, from the coastal nations, the Swinomish tribal communities there. And uh, this was actually a breakup album, <laughs> but uh, somehow the, of course, the subtext of her own people and her kind of a personal and larger situation melt and this is the song Indians Never Die and she played all the instruments and recorded herself um, it's a one woman project really a powerful album In the way And that's Black Belt Eagle Scout on her song, uh, Indians Never Die. That has a very indie groove to it, and, but yet it has a kind of epic indigenous feel. I love her music. It's very interesting because on the one hand, she grew up in a family of artists. Her her father's a totem carver, and she grew up uh, dancing, traditional dance. And one of the dances that she danced is called the jingle dress dance. And she was telling me about it. You've, we've probably seen it in powwows. It's yep. like these little wrapped metal cones with ribbons, and they they percuss and jingle as you dance. But they were originally made from the tops of snuff cans, of tobacco cans, the colonial tobacco cans. So to me, this is this whole metaphor for transforming grief into beauty and getting through it that way. Of course, it is very Indian. It's very contemporary because she grew up in the land of Nirvana. She said that was her influence as a young woman after she (laughs) did the jingle dress dancing. And this is one of the things about powwows and indigenous culture is that it incorporates things, it changes, it it moves. It's not a a static or old-timey thing. Exactly. And I think that's a very powerful statement to the resilience and the presence. So that's why these younger artists are very much in the now. And they're saying, and we're still here. It's a testament to 500 years of resilience. We're marking Indigenous Peoples Day here on Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonald talking with Catalina Maria Johnson on Global Notes. And uh, what's next here? Well, this is actually an Indigenous uh, Anishinaabe scholar, poet, literary figure, and a recent spoken word musician. She's accompanied by Chris Dirksen, who is a Cray cellist. And this is a beautiful piece, somewhere between poetry and spoken word and music. And it's from an album called Islands of Decolonial Love. This is Leanne Betasamosake Simpson and Chris Dirksen. On my TV, I heard that anti-silence, because you can hear silence if you try. I heard your elders, your dancers, your musicians, your poets. I heard your berry pickers, your beaters, your storytellers, your kukums. I 
heard your hunters, your trappers, your fishers, your medicine people. On my TV, I held the sound of your big river crashing, rushing, birthing life over land, birthing life over diamond rings, birthing life over sewage. That's from the Islands of Decolonial Love album by Leanne Simpson and Chris Dirksen. That's really powerful. That's good. It really is. And uh, she's a poet. So she speaks of creating layers of coding. So she's not definitely not just speaking to us, but to her own people. And in this coded language, sharing visions of a different future. I think that's what I sense in all of the indigenous artists. And it's, that's why it's so powerful, because it's a statement of presence and maintaining a perspective and being seen, a visibility, which will be certainly heightened in the future, I see. I think it's interesting to think about the politics of indigenous peoples these days. There's so much about clean water and energy resources and and we've all thinking about how we can adopt different ways of doing things and the indigenous people have some ideas for us there's a lot there they have a mindset uh, that would be helpful to think through definitely i was speaking to an indigenous uh, scholar about the use of the language and uh, he's saying exactly that 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 this, these ideas, they're transmitted in the language. The language is law. The languages are, are rule. They tell you how to relate to others, how to relate to the world. So that that's very important. And, if, and then he, even hearing and understanding a bit of what is being presented in the songs in different First Peoples, First Nations languages, that brings us to a different kind of understanding. And this is all part of, like, sharing this world, because we're going to have to share it, all of us, and healing it. And definitely, I think the perspective that is presented by indigenous scholars and artists is absolutely essential to that healing. I understand we're going way up north now. We're, we're going way up there. We're going all the way to the Arctic. <laughs> this is an artist I just discovered, and such powerful music, uh, an Inuk artist who uh, sings in her own language as well as French, Elisa Pierre, and it's powerful, beautiful music. And this song is, in fact, addressing men and talking about the strength of women. We are mothers. We are powerful. Arnak. Marking Indigenous Peoples Day here on Worldview and our Global Notes segment where we look at international music with Catalina Maria Johnson. And that was from the Arctic, the Arctic of northernmost Quebec. 
of Turtle Island. <laughs> wow. Yeah, powerful music, very wonderful imagery. A lot of the music that's coming out now, to me at least, uh, by new indigenous artists, it has this sense of landscape and space. It marks a space. And when I heard this music, I didn't know it was from the Arctic exactly, but I, I felt the strength and the space and the vastness of of that space. And I, I love this. I just discovered it. And finally, we're going to go out with uh, somebody we talked about before, Jeremy Dutcher. He just won uh, Canada's most prestigious artistic musical award, and he's going great guns with this record. This is an amazing record, and we highlighted it before before it won the prize, and now it has won the Polaris Prize, the best album uh, in Canada of last year, based solely on artistic merit by a music industry and music journalist jury selected precisely for that. So this is from his album, Wolastikik Lintuwakonawa, which is the songs of the people of the beautiful river. And in this, you'll hear his elder and mentor, Maggie Paul, make a prophecy, which I hope as we uh, sit here on celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day, I hope that this will all happen. Sweat lodges are here. Teepees are going all over the place. Wigwams, people are making wigwams. So you think music had a lot to do with that? Oh, yeah. Bringing that back? Look at that, right? Music. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. Really? Music will bring you... There's a little bit of Jeremy Dutcher's uh, new album, the Polaris Prize winner, and we talked about it before, but he took some of the uh, Edison cylinders that were made around 1910 of songs uh, from his indigenous ethnic group, and and he weaves them into this album, and it's a spectacular thing. It really is. It's a very, very special and powerful piece by Jeremy Dutcher. Well, happy Indigenous Peoples Day. Indeed. <laughs> and and here's to many more. <laughs> Catalina Maria Johnson here on Global Notes, as she is every week now. And you can hear her on Beat Latino, on Vocalo, on the weekends, and writing everywhere. She'll have a, a piece on Jeremy Dutcher on the NPR website if you look there. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us, Catalina. Thanks a lot, Jerome. It's always a pleasure. And he said... The ancestors that have went before know the songs. They're listening. And they're so happy because mm-hmm. we're singing them again. And he said, and you never asked, you know, what is the song or, or anything. He said, you just, they gave it to you to sing and you sang it. And he said, you didn't even ask, you fans of much, you just sang it. 
Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to talk about capitalism. I'll be speaking with Rick Perlstein. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his 2008 work on the financial crisis. And he has a new book out, and it's called Can American Capitalism Survive? Why Greed is Not Good, Opportunity is Not Equal, and Fairness Won't Make Us Poor. So we're going to have a chat about capitalism tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. And thanks very much to Mike Gilmore for engineering today. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.